We are in Matthew chapter 20. Uh, this is our second message in the series. Our theme is sort of like traveling to Jerusalem with Jesus, and we first started with Caesarea Philippi at Simon Peter's confession that Jesus is the Christ. And so from that pivotal point, we're going to start moving along into our journey. When looking at narratives, gospel narratives, it's very helpful to look at them as you would uh, a movie director. And uh, last week, uh, my family and I, we went and watched this movie, Jesus Revolution. I don't know how many of you have seen that, but if you haven't seen it, go see it. It's, it's great. It's actually about the Jesus movement back in the 70s. Um, and it's actually going to give you a lot of history about even our own church because our church has Calvary Chapel roots, which is where the Jesus movement had its roots from as well. And our founding pastor that I co-founded the church with, he was trained at a Calvary Chapel in Albuquerque, New Mexico. I was trained in a Calvary Chapel down in Southern California. And so this movie shows that movement, including the Calvary Chapel movement, growing out of the Jesus movement. And, and going to watch this movie brought me a ton of memories because I remember going to what's called Pirate's Cove in Southern California, this beach cove where all these baptisms happened. And I witnessed those, not, not back in the 70s, but I witnessed baptisms when I was a teen and older right there. So uh, just to throw that out there, but I, I bring this movie up in support of it, but also in terms of how to approach these Bible narratives that we're going to look at this morning in a way that, that we watch movies is, is kind of a great way to read these biblical narratives. And the Gospels are just an extended Bible narrative. And so for us to take a seat as a movie director and go through these biblical scenes as if directing the movie and going through these series of events so that you're looking at them through a movie director's lens and where you can picture so much more being communicated even though it's not in a printed word, that there are these things that are are there, you know that phrase, a uh, picture's worth a thousand words? It's true in that what you see is so powerful and so impactful. So when reading the Bible, it's kind of like this. It's more than just the words. You need to be able to catch the pictures to be kind of like a movie director and, and to find those dramatic pauses or, or whatever you need to see in terms of how people look at each other in terms of how their faces contort or how their body language changes and, and to picture those sorts of things. And so last week we were in Caesarea Philippi. We focused on Simon Peter's encounter with Jesus. And because of those interactions between Jesus and Peter, we know there's significance in that narrative. And, and we're going to look at the second interaction this morning between Jesus and some other people as he makes his way to Jerusalem. So this is, again, the Lenten series theme and, and, and stopping along some of these gospel narratives as Jesus makes his way to Calvary to see and, and pause and, and look at some of these encounters and conversations that, that people had with Jesus. And so today we look at this really fascinating meeting between Jesus and a, and a person who usually doesn't get a whole lot of screen time. It's the mother of the sons of Zebedee, James and John. And, and it's, a, it's a fascinating sort of title or description, isn't it? Because her name's not given, even though there are some scholars who believe this is Salome, 
the sister of Mary, who is the mother of Jesus. So that this is Jesus' aunt. There's some scholars who believe this. But here she's described as the mother of the sons of Zebedee, the mother of James and John, who were fishermen, and not just your hobby fishermen, but, but very successful fishermen. Because if you go to the Sea of Galilee today, and there's archaeology today, you'll see prints or chiseling marks of Zebedee in the columns and things to tell you, like, this is a prominent family. This is like more of a fishing enterprise than it is just like a fishing boat where a guy's just fishing and stuff. This, this is a, a business that he has around the Sea of Galilee. So here we are when, when, when Jesus meets the mother of the sons of Zebedee, who is possibly his aunt, which also may explain why she has this access to Jesus as she does. Now there's another gospel account of this story in Mark where it's James and John who are approaching Jesus himself and it's just giving us a different perspective from a different angle, from a different author of the same story. But needless to say, James and John and their mother probably kind of talked to each other about this request to Jesus before they made it. Like this is how we're going to approach Jesus about this situation. And here it is, verse 20. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons and kneeling before him, she asked him for something. I picture in my mind that this mother of the sons of Zebedee is not a timid person. She seems to be a pretty confident person to ask for what she's going to ask for. And Jesus, being as wise as he is, he asks a clarifying question. Verse 21. And he said to her, what do you want? Now, if this lady was indeed Mary's sister, making her Jesus' aunt, she'd be really familiar with when her sister Mary informed Jesus about this wedding in Cana when they ran out of wine. And you can read of that story in John chapter 2. And when this wedding at Cana ran out of wine, Mary said to her son Jesus, this. She didn't ask any questions. All she said was this. They have no wine. That's so mom-like, isn't it? That's, and you notice, you know, she didn't say like, you know, uh, Jesus, can you make more wine? They ran out of wine. She's just like, they have no more. They have no wine. And it, it's just the disposition of a mother, right? It's kind of like where they're coming from. It's their, their, their position to, to infer a need without straight out asking about it and, and just assuming, Jesus, you're going to take care of that. They have no more wine. And so we take a look at the mother of the sons of Zebedee's position, and if this is indeed an aunt, and if this is indeed a sister, she said to him, this is really interesting phrasing, say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your kingdom. So again, not a question. I think they are indeed sisters. That it's, it's not even a request, it's not even a need that she's presenting, even as his mom presented in saying that they have no wine. There's not a need here, but it's a very presumptive thing, and, it, and it's kind of like leading Jesus in a way. And so this mother is not a dummy. She knows what she's doing. She knows what she's kind of asking for without asking. And it's not just by how she phrased what she wanted, but it's also by her posture. Because you notice in verse 20 that she's kneeling before Jesus to ask him for something. 
And to get on one's knees to ask for something, it it can be a very humbling thing, but it also can be very difficult, challenging for the one granting what's being asked for to say no. Like, how are you going to do that when, when somebody's postured that way? But then you have to really think, and again, using your movie director eyes, picturing how is this person kneeling? Because your attitude can be very different depending on how you're kneeling depending on which direction you're looking. Because if someone is approaching in a way where they're kneeling with their eyes down, asking for something and saying like, Jesus, can you do something for me? It's very different than someone approaching you and looking straight into your eyes and saying, Jesus, I need you to do something for me. It's very different, isn't it? It's a very humble posture to have one looking down, and then if they're looking straight into your eye, knowing what they want, but yet they're still kneeled, but they're looking straight at you. It's a very different posture. So I imagine as a movie director reading this story that this mother of the sons of Zebedee, yes, she knelt, and she's postured in this kind of humble manner, but she's looking straight at her nephew's eyes. I'm your auntie, and this is what I want. And so approaching Jesus, not humbly, but kind of with this proud resolve, like, you're going to give it to me. I have a feeling that she's not a person that is told no very often. Because she is extremely bright. She's a very smart lady. She, She knows how to get what she wants. She doesn't approach Jesus with a closed ended question, which Jesus can just say, no. Like, Jesus, can you put my sons under? No. No, she doesn't do it that way. And she knows the posture she needs to take before the kneeling, especially in front of all these people. And she's also a woman of means, evidenced by her place in society with this fishing enterprise that's behind her with Zebedee. And so no doubt a financial supporter of Jesus's ministry because her own two sons are part of it. No doubt that there is some financial backing from this family. And so this is a challenging spot for any of us to be put in, isn't it? Because if this is a relative, like an aunt, like an overbearing aunt, which I have a few, I'm not going to name you them. I love all of you. Who doesn't give us closed-ended questions to simply just say no, and is an older lady who approaches us in front of others, on her knees in humility, which has the optics of humility, but probably not because she's probably looking straight into Jesus' eyes as opposed to like looking down, please, Jesus, can you do this for me? How can anyone say no to that lady? It's difficult. Lastly, this older lady also supports your ministry financially, probably pretty significantly because she has two sons that are traveling with you. So she's probably like, um... Right? Come on. Give this to me. So, tough. A very tough spot for anyone here to just say no. But again, this is Jesus. Very, very skilled at dealing with challenging people and challenging scenarios. And so, Jesus responds to this overly ambitious mother who wants to see her sons in the top positions, which also puts herself in this best light because it's like, those are my sons. And I'm their mother. I'm so proud of them. 
right? So it, it would be a, a very different approach if this intent from her is all about Christ, but it's really not. It's about her. It's about her sons. This request is all about her sons, and it's all about herself. Because if it were about Christ, she'd present her sons in a very different way in terms of saying, these are my boys, and here they are for your service. And leave it at that. Kind of like Samuel's mom, right? God, if you give me a son, he's yours. It's nothing for her, it's nothing for her son. And so for James and John to be used, however brings glory and honor to Jesus Christ and his kingdom, that's what I want my sons. I don't really care about the position. They just, I'm just dedicating them to serve you. And it's not about position. It's not about my position. I just want to dedicate them. And that would be more of the sense of humility and, and more of it's about Christ and not about herself or her sons. Verse 22 Jesus answered, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? They said to him, we are able. He said to them, you will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those whom it has been prepared by my father. And when the ten heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. We're going to look at this a little more a little later, uh, but I just wanted to point some other things out first. And you notice that Jesus isn't harsh with them even though he probably could have been. He's actually quite gracious here. I mean, scholars believe that these are his first cousins, so he's, like, he's not going to put them down too hard. And the other disciples, as you notice, they were indignant about what James and John did. They were very angry at what this mother tried to pull off because they're thinking, like, who do they think they are? You know, why, why would it be them? Why choose them? Why, why isn't it me? But, but Jesus is not indignant. He sees through all of this. He sees all of this clearly in terms of like, you know what, all of you are going to ditch me anyway. So it's none of you all. And he gently teaches James and John and their mother about their misunderstanding. Because they clearly misunderstand the nature of the kingdom of God. That the positions people have in this world, they don't equate to the spiritual influence or the spiritual leadership in the kingdom of God. And many times the church tries to mimic the world in the same way in terms of organizational structures and how to plan things and putting them in kind of a business organization. And the church kind of looks for the same qualities of leadership as the world does rather than looking for spiritual influence into an everlasting kingdom. Let's continue on to verse 25. But Jesus called them to him and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. The mother of James and John doesn't really know what she's asking of Jesus. She thinks that she's asking for a position of power, of authority. But what she's really asking for is a position of a servant. The lowest position in our world is the highest position in the kingdom of God. And that's not what James, John, or their mother really want. That's not what they really want. The way to true spiritual fruitfulness is through service. 
And it's not by the positions that the mother of James and John asked for. James, John, and their mother don't really understand the true nature of God's kingdom, at least not yet. That the way up to the kingdom of God is actually down. And by humble service to God in his kingdom. That's the way up to the kingdom is down. And so many people are confused about this. That they're wanting these positions of power in the world, thinking that it equates to positions of power in the kingdom. Just as the mother of James and John thought. She thought she was going to use her own position on an earthly level of her own power and her own wealth and her influence and to try to pull that into the kingdom. And again, this is a prosperous woman from a prosperous business. And this is a woman that is not used to not getting her way. She's used to asking for something and getting it. And she approached Jesus seeing what she wanted for herself and her sons. And she wanted that from Jesus. And there's so many of us that are guilty of this. About the things that we want. And what we want for others, including our loved ones. While not looking at what Jesus actually wants. And she looked at Jesus and how she can benefit. Rather than looking at the needs of the kingdom and how she can serve Jesus Christ. Unfortunately, this is how some approach the kingdom of God and how they approach church in terms of saying, what can I get out of this? What can I get out of God? Rather than looking at how can I serve this community? How can I serve this church? How can I serve the kingdom? The other thing she grossly misunderstands is the cost of the kingdom. It is very costly. Look back to verses 22 and 23, and you'll notice that Jesus' attention moves from the mother to James and John as to inform his mother in an indirect way. What you want from your sons is totally different from what I want for your sons. So he's still kind of giving respect in a way by addressing these sons, by her hearing this, Jesus answered, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? Those guys said, we are able. He said to them, you will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and my left hand is not mine to grant, but it is for those whom it has been prepared for by my father. And so Jesus tells them, you misunderstand how much this costs costliness of the kingdom that there's only you're only looking at like benefits but you're not looking at how much it costs that it's not just living with Christ it's also dying with Christ and if the mother of the sons of Zebedee is indeed the sister of Mary she would also know what the prophet Simeon shared with Mary when Jesus was born Luke chapter 2 starting in verse 34 and Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother behold this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed and here's something that she would probably know and a sword will pierce through your own soul also so that the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. Like, did you count the cost of that, Auntie? Your own soul is going to be pierced if you really get what you're asking for. Did you count the cost? 
Is that what you really want? A sword will pierce through your own soul. And the way of the kingdom is an extremely costly thing. That yes, Santi, you're materially rich in this world, but what you're going to pay in terms of cost is more than material riches, much more. And so you're misunderstanding the cost of the kingdom. You're misunderstanding the nature of the kingdom. You're also misunderstanding the king, Jesus. Verse 27, And whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. And so this passage, you have to keep context in mind. This passage is right before Jesus foretelling for the third time his death to his disciples. This story is right after that. So Matthew 20, starting in verse 17, And as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the twelve disciples aside, and on the way he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and he will be raised on the third day. And then we get to this story in verse 28, where Jesus is saying, I'm going to Jerusalem to give my life as a ransom for many to give his life as a substitute for many. And as the prophet Isaiah prophesied in Isaiah 53, starting in verse 3, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God. And afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. And the mother of James and John did not understand this. She says, Jesus, you know, I want you to do something for me. And Jesus responds with this What do you want? What do you want? Last week, we looked at this all-important question that all of us need to answer from Mark chapter 8, verse 29, and it's this all-important question that all of us need to answer, but who do you say that I am? That's a, the all-important question for all of us to answer. And now, there's another very important question for us to think about from Jesus. What do you want? What do you want? And it's a question that just, if you pause and you think and you meditate about it and you really want to learn from it, it looks so deep into your own spiritual motivations and your own spiritual intentions. It looks really, really deep into that. Because like any mother or any parent, the most important thing for you is actually not what happens to you. It's what happens to your children, isn't it? If you're a parent, if you're a guardian, isn't that true? You can cast yourself aside. I want what's best for my kid. And this is the life of a mother. This is the life of a parent. We want what is best for our children, even if it's at our own expense. We will pay it. We will deal with it. And it's such an admirable trait of a parent 
but it also clearly tests who we are spiritually. It totally tests that in such a vulnerable, transparent way. Because what do we really want for our children spiritually? Maybe some of you have been given this test already and you passed, and maybe some of you have failed miserably like I have. I have failed miserably at this test. Because all my children's lives, since they were born, this is the first thing I tell them when, right when they come out, and I hold them, I say, Jesus is Lord. That is the first thing they, they ever hear. That's what I whisper to them. It's like, Jesus is Lord. Nurse, wash him, please. No, okay, I'm kidding, I'm kidding. I love it. But all of my life, I've been telling that, that to them. But you know, the funny thing is that my efforts since that time of birth and my time and my money show a completely different story. Because I've invested so much of my effort and my time and my money into their education, into trying to get them into a good college so that they can get a good job and be successful. So it's been invested into where they go to school. It's been invested into their tutoring. It's been invested into helping with their studies and their projects and studying for tests and doing their homework and pushing them to get good grades and giving them consequences when they don't. Just like your typical tiger parent, me. Then my oldest daughter comes along in her teens and God so often uses her to sanctify me. Like, in terms of sanctification, there is no one that does it better than Isabella. Isabella is my sanctification stick. <laughs> and she's had some very severe mental health struggles. Um, I have permission to share these things. Isabella and I talk openly about these things. She, she knows about these things. But she has been suicidal and has been in a very bad place for much of her teen years. And she failed her sophomore year, like completely failed that year of school. It's gone. And it was then that I was confronted with my priorities because Isabella, even though she failed academically and in education and is not doing well and I invested all this time, she's thriving with the Lord. And it just smacked me off the top of my head, like just bumped me on the head because here I am, I'm seeing this kid and she's studying her Bible and she's, she's like drawing things and she's connecting dots and all this kind of stuff, like things that I didn't do when I was 15, 16. I didn't study my Bible like that. I mean, I read it and stuff, but there's also like actual diagrams and all this kind of stuff that she's doing. I'm looking at this. I'm like, whoa, this is nuts. And she's trying to teach herself how to play the guitar. And she's worshiping the Lord. And she got baptized. And she's speaking to her friends about Jesus. And she's initiating with me to go to a father-daughter retreat as a teenager, she asked me. Like, yeah, I'm going to go. Yes, let's go. And so I was confronted about what I said since they were babies. Because what I said, I really didn't understand. 
I said Jesus is Lord, but I don't think I understood that. I don't think I understood the true nature of the kingdom of God. I don't think I understood the costs. Because I think part of it is this cost that I have this kid that is suicidal and struggles with her mental health. And that cost was so extremely costly that there are times I can't sleep because I have to set my alarm to wake up every half hour to see, did she hurt herself? And I misunderstood the king. And I'm so grateful and thankful to my daughter for being used by God to look deeper into my own spiritual motivations. And it's such a great test of your spirituality. What do you want, really? Is advancement in this world what we're really after? something I still struggle with? Or is it an advancement in the kingdom of God? If my children truly get what I give them, will they advance in this world or will they advance in the kingdom of God? Because the kingdom of God is what matters. And you see how deep that question really is. It's a really, really deep one. It searches deep. Because our children will get what we give them. They get that. And what we want for them is really what we really want for ourselves. And this sanctification moment for the mother of James and John. No doubt a moment when she had to think more deeply about what she really wanted. And I think she eventually passed the test because James died a martyr's death. John was exiled to an island for the rest of his life. So I think she passed the test. I think she got it. That the mother of James and John was accustomed to getting her way and she thought that she knew the best way for her boys. And Jesus made her think about what she asked for and what she really wanted. And Jesus asked us this morning the same question. What do you want? Really? And we might share with Jesus the things we want. And those very answers to that question is the very telling thing about who you are in Christ and what we're going to pass along to this next generation, whether it's your children or the kids you're going to invest in the children's ministry, that next generation of Christians. Now the next story right after this one is about two blind men who cry out to Jesus and they cry out this in Matthew chapter 20 verse 30. Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. That's the story right after this. And Jesus asked them in Matthew 20 verse 32. What do you want me to do for you? There's that question again. And they said, Lord, let our eyes be opened. And Jesus touched their eyes, they immediately recovered their sight, and they followed Jesus. I think this is what happened to the mother of James and John. I think she's going along in the story, she sees this healing, and I think she finally understood based off of what's been happening and how Jesus ministered to her and how her sons ended up that she passed that test and she told Jesus the same thing. Lord, have mercy on me. Open my eyes. I'll follow you. Let's pray.
Lord, thank you so much for your mercy. You are merciful to us and, and how you just get so deep inside of our own spiritual motivations and intentions. And I ask God that you would open our eyes, that we wouldn't be looking at what you can do for us or what you can provide for us, but that we want to be a blessing to you. We want to serve you, that we are humbling ourselves in order to see you in all of your glory. And as you open up our eyes, Lord, may we humbly follow you. Thank you for your grace in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to go into a time of communion now. So if you need any communion elements, just hold up your hands and we'll get that over to you. If anyone is needing, wanting prayer, Susanna is in the right front pew. She'd be honored to pray with you. The broken body of Christ symbolizing the reconciliation that he provided for us in being a ransom for many, a substitute for our sins taken upon himself. Let's remember this in Jesus Christ. The fruit of the vine symbolizing the blood of Christ shed for us May we not misunderstand the costliness of that reconciliation. In Jesus' name we take this. Lord Jesus, thank you for these elements, the continual reminder of this great love you have for us, this amazing grace you have for us. In Jesus' name.